Okay, so for a few weeks now, I've talked about covenant as being the way that relationship happens between mankind and God. You're probably getting sick of hearing it. If you'd start to say the the words, and I'll quit saying them because I'll know it's getting in. It takes a lot of passes for this to get deep inside of us. Covenant is like a contract, but in the biblical sense, it's it's not the best way to see it, but it's an okay way to see it. The best way to see it would be more like a marriage covenant, a thing that's, that's, um, that's, that's rooted in love but still has terms. So a contract has terms, if this, then that. The covenant of grace, the New Testament covenant of grace by which we would find our salvation, our relationship with God restored, has terms. It's important that you understand, that we understand, that the terms of the covenant must be met for the covenant to actually be in place. When a, when a man and a woman get married, they speak vows to each other. And, and those vows are in place to establish what the relationship will be like. Same is true between mankind and God. In order to have, in this case, eternal relationship with God, we must meet the terms of the covenant that he's offered to us in order to have that happen. Last week, I talked about the first of those terms, and I used some of the scriptures to demonstrate how it could be confusing. Uh, In one place it says, believe and you will be saved. In another place it says, repent and you will be saved. In another place it says, repent and be baptized and you will be saved. In another place it says, call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Is it this one or is it that one or somehow is it all of them? The answer really is it's all of them. And the place where that comes together is in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, or 8 and 9 specifically. Apostle Paul again. But what does it say? The word is near you. Let me back up a minute. Romans 10 is all about salvation. It's, it's in the... It's, it's, um, it's, it's presented in the context of the Jews, but there's only one gospel to mankind. So it's the same for us as it is for the Jews. And he says there is no distinction between Gentile and Jew. All of 10 is about salvation. In verse 8, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. There's a specific word that he's speaking of. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. So he's describing the gospel, the, the, the faith word that brings to salvation, brings people to salvation. This is what we've been preaching. And then he defines what that word is. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So can you put my picture up? It should be the next thing. It's, it's hard to see, but I wanted to break those verses up in a picture. So when Paul says this word, it's, it's near you, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's this word we've been preaching, the word of faith. That is, that's the top part. That's the, the, the big picture faith that brings salvation. That's the, the, the faith that is the covenant that God offers to mankind to have relationship with him. But, but it's got two pillars that support it and they both have to be in place for saving faith to be in place. The first pillar is the one we talked about last week, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. So the yellow little letters that you can't read are the actual words. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That's across that platform on the top. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's the pillar on the left. That, and that pillar encompasses everything you find in the scriptures 
When you say Jesus is Lord and the Bible speaks to repentance, you've answered repentance with Jesus as Lord. Because anything that you would be required to repent from would be outside of his lordship. You would repent into his will, which would be his lordship over your life. Anything that has to do with obedience or if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. A surrender is um, it's encapsulated in Jesus as Lord over your life, the confession of Jesus, not the perfect doing of Jesus, right? Because then it is a salvation of works. It's not. Bible says that God doesn't measure your behavior. He measures your heart. So if you say, I confess you, Jesus, as Lord over my life, my will is completely subjected to your will. And you mean it. It's sincere. And then he says, okay, it's my will for you to do this, but because of fear or anger, who knows what, you don't do what he said. You do the opposite of what he said. He's not measuring your behavior. Oh, you're not saved because you broke my law. He looks past the behavior to your heart. And he says, you know what? Pat's heart is mine. His flesh, not so much. And, and however I behave isn't the issue to, my, to that piece of the covenant term. That term of the covenant isn't based on my behavior. It's based on the position of my heart. And there are people who struggle with certain sin things. They don't have to because they're not a slave of sin. But because of life experiences and pains and fears and hurts that might continue to stumble, not willfully sin, but continue to stumble in sinful behaviors that does not affect their salvation. Because it's not by your works that you're saved. It's by the sincere confession of your heart with Jesus as Lord over your life. And then the second pillar being <laughs> that you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. So that's the, that's the little yellow scriptures you see in the second pillar on the right. And then that fully encompasses all the places in scripture where you, you see, just believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That peace covers every place where it speaks to faith. The combination of those two is saving faith, which Paul says is the word that's near you. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. Okay? Okay, so then this week, I want to talk to you about that second pillar. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. There's, there's two interesting things about those pillars. The, the pillar on the left, confessing Jesus as, as Lord, is, is literally an act of will. If you believe that's part of the process to come to salvation... And you, and you have some understanding of why you would want to come to salvation anyway, then it's an act of your personal will to say, I will submit, a lot of words, will. I choose to submit my will to Jesus as Lord over my life. But the second one, to believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, it's not so much an act of will, and it requires context. I mean, it really does require some kind of broader understanding. So I want to try to build context around that piece that is believing in Jesus, and he raised from the dead before we get into it in any kind of technical sense. Okay, so when he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it, repl- it, replies, it, it implies sincerity. Both of them require sincerity. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Yes. When I'm presented with things that I know are outside his will, It's everything that I am to stay within his will. But what happens when you fail that? It's still my desire. It was sincere in my heart. Sometimes I stumble. 
that's where grace comes in. That's confess your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive them. The sincerity of your faith in Jesus as having been raised from the dead is just as much a requirement. It can't be, um, okay, I believe. Well, do you believe in God? I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine a real God. I mean, where is he? I've never seen him. Well, do you believe in creation or evolution? Sorry, I get an itch. Well, I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine. Everything I was taught in school says that, you know, there was this little glob of something and somehow lightning struck it and over 10 kabillion years, you know, all this became like this. Outside of having some sincere belief that there actually is a God, how could you how could you believe that he was raised from the dead? How can you have faith in something? Now, does that mean that if somebody believes in creation or in evolution and they don't yet believe in creation that they can't be saved? I don't think so. But there has to be some foundational sense for God that he's real before you could actually ever believe in him. Both of those pillars lead to being saved. And a couple of questions that people might ask. Now, remember, the context of this isn't so much to get you saved, right? I'm just trusting that we're all saved. If you're not, we're going to have an opportunity today to, to do this and, and, and meet the terms of the covenant before God. But the idea is that we have to respond properly to the Great Commission. So you're talking to somebody who isn't a believer, who's not born again, who, who hasn't given their life to Jesus, and, and they might like ask a question, you know, well, why do I need to be saved at all? That's a reasonable question. Another question might be saved from what? So we need to be able to respond to somebody that says, well, I'm an all right person. Why do I need to be saved? They need to understand that they're actually not an all right person. Because one of the deceptions in the world is that, that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And, and if, if the standard were a man's standard, we could draw some kind of a class curve, put the percentage wherever God said to put it, and the ones that were above would go to heaven and the ones that were below wouldn't, but that's not the standard. The standard of eternal life with God is his very holiness. Nobody meets that standard. Not one person meets the standard of the holiness of God such that they could actually spend eternity with him in heaven. So they need to understand, why is it that I need to get saved at all? And then what is it that if I get saved, I'm being saved from? Let me read you two scriptures. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by a gift, or excuse me, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So saved from what is the actual wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God that was brought about by our sinful disobedience to God. It's interesting, last week I, I had a thought, it was after church or I would have shared it with you. 
a lot of people, they don't struggle so much with the believe side of the equation, but they really struggle with the lordship side of the equation. And, and they struggle with the lordship side because they think it connects them back under law. But if you think about mankind's relationship with God and you just go right back to the garden, how was it separated? By man choosing not to serve God as Lord. God said, hey, it's all yours. Enjoy it. You didn't have to do any work, but just to harvest it and eat it and enjoy it. Except for this one tree in the middle. That one you can't eat because if you eat from that one, you surely will die. That was the, that was the entirety of the lordship of God over their lives. One command. But they chose not to serve him as Lord, and they ate from the tree they were commanded not to eat from. They separated themselves. So how in the world would we imagine that God would offer us a restored relationship that was broken based upon we wouldn't obey him as Lord and tell us it's okay that you don't do it now? The beauty is that because of his grace and the sacrifice of his son, we can actually disobey his lordship and not get metaphorically kicked out of the garden today because what he's asking for is a sincere heart. Okay. Gospel, the word gospel means good news. If we're going to share the gospel with someone who has no concept of the bad news, then the good news doesn't really mean much to them, right? If I was to go to somebody and say, hey, listen, I have good news for you. Awesome, what's the good news? The good news is that you can go to heaven and spend eternity with God. Why wouldn't I just go anyway? Well, here's the bad news. Because you've separated yourself from God by your sin. I've never had a sin. Do you believe in God? I do. Do you believe that he's the creator of everything? I do. This is just a hypothetical conversation. Have you ever sinned? Well, no, I'm a good guy. Did you ever tell a lie? I did. Hmm. That's all it took. You are not righteous enough to be with God. Oh, my goodness. What happens? Well... He pour his wrath out forever on people that don't take his offer of grace through his son. And, and, and you would have any concept of hell? Oh, my gosh, yeah, it's horrible. Burning and, uh, yeah, that's the wrath of God forever. Culminating in this thing that's called the lake of fire. Could you imagine, like, molten, stinky sulfur lake? And it's so hot, it's boiling lake, it's burning lake, and you're in there forever. Okay, but then, you know, can I... Repent? No. No. Well, what would I have to do to get out of the lake? You can't. Well, at some point, will I just burn up and disappear? I just don't exist anymore? You'll wish, but you can't. At some point, and that's that point, that's how I, when we pass from this life to the next, there is no opportunity for the gospel to have any effect on you. You've chosen to reject God. They say, well, I've never rejected God. It's like, you may not understand that you're doing it, but you are rejecting God by rejecting his son. John 3, I'm going to get this wrong, but 3, 16, 17, 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For the father did not send the son to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, but whoever doesn't believe is already judged. I think that's pretty close. If you, if you looked me up, it might be a little bit of a paraphrase. But the point of it is, he didn't send Jesus because he's looking to judge the world. The world's already judged. Every one of us, already judged. Destination hell, done, game over, without Jesus. 
With no understanding of the bad news, the reception of the good news is going to be pretty lame. So what must a person actually believe? What, what would you place your faith in? What does a person actually be, have to believe in order to get salvation from God? Now, we've already talked about lordship, right? One half of the equation. Now, this thing that, that culminates in believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does that encompass? The first thing is that they'd have to actually believe that they're dead to God that they're lost eternally in their sin because nobody who doesn't understand they're lost asks to be saved. They might even pray a prayer with us, but, but if they don't really have a sense that there is a God, that they are separated from that God by their sin, then how can their prayer be sincere to God for their salvation? Second thing that a person would have to understand is that they're absolutely hopeless of their own accord of getting back right with God. It's huge. Remember the conversation about the garment, the perfect white garment. Jesus, if, if we saw Jesus in a robe, it would be perfect white, absolute and perfect white. There would be no stain, no any kind of corruption at all. If we were to see ourselves in our own robe, it would be completely stained by our sin. It wouldn't be white at all. You can't scrub and wash. You can't do this. You can't spend the rest of your life and never commit a sin and be okay before God. Once you recognize your lostness, you really come to believe, oh my gosh, my destiny is hell. I better clean up my life. You're you're still as done as you ever were relative to God because you can't. As soon as we stain the garment, the stained garment, we can't come be with God. The garment has to be replaced with a garment that has no stain. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. So when we talk to somebody and they come to understand that there really is a God and, and there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and their destination really is hell, we don't tell them to quit being a homosexual, quit telling lies, quit doing adultery, quit stealing, quit all. It's, it's like, because all that is works and it won't clean their garment and make them righteous again. They have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ to be righteous before God. On the day of Pentecost, when uh, the the disciples, the apostles and the disciples were told to go, go into the city and wait in this upper room for the gift of God. When the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come and, and when that baptism happens, you will be empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the world. So they're up there and they're praying and they're waiting and they're praying and they're waiting. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he just drops like a bomb and, and it's like tongues of fire being put on these people. And, and, and a all this stuff happening that, that the people that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, they come like, what the heck is going on? And they hear these Galileans speaking in, in the native tongues of the people that have come from all these different places. And they're like, oh, man, something's happened. And then Peter starts to preach because they said, look at these guys. They're drunk. He's like, they're not drunk like you think. This is what was prophesied in the, in the, uh, by the prophet Joel is happening now. And, and then the anointing is coming upon these guys and Peter's explaining to them, you killed the Christ. This Jesus, the Nazarene, he was the one that was prophesied and you put him on a cross. And all of a sudden, like when we have a conversation with somebody, they realize because the anointing is present, the drawing of a man uh, by the father unto the son 
Father God unto Son Jesus is happening in their hearts. And they respond with this. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter shares with them the gospel. There has to be some sense that, oh my gosh, what do I do for somebody to actually do something? They have to understand that there is hope for them, eternal life, born again, relationship, reconciliation to God, that they have hope, but it's not in self-righteousness. You can't achieve relationship with God through your own righteousness. That was the uh, problem. I just, the scripture popped into my head um, during worship. It's Luke 18. This wasn't in my notes, but I think it's good. This is Jesus speaking. And, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that, that they were righteous enough to have relationship with God and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus speaking again. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's this guy practicing righteousness and declaring before God that he's righteous because he's not like that guy over there. That guy's a sinner for sure. But me, I pay my tithe. I fast, not just one day a week, two days a week. I don't swindle. I don't tell any lies. God, just look at my beautiful white righteous robe. Filthy, filthy. And Jesus said in the parable, listen, that guy, no game, no dice. But this other guy who humbled himself, he said, Lord, just be merciful to me, the sinner. There's recognition of his need to be saved versus trying to save himself because he can't save himself. The Pharisee, who was the religious guy, was the one who wasn't going to be saved unless he humbled himself before the Savior. Okay. So if we can't be righteous by doing good in order to regain relationship with God, what is the righteousness that we can hope in? It's imputed righteousness. Now, this may seem super simple to you, but someday you're going to have this conversation with somebody and you want to be able to explain to them that you're literally given, you're literally being given the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your very own righteousness. His righteousness is being imputed to you. And as you make the confession, as you meet the terms of the covenant, your sin is being accounted for what he paid on the cross. That's the transaction that happens. Okay, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is like a word that it's hard to understand because it's not a word that ever gets used. You'll see... 
in different translations, you'll see, I think the NIV says like the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And um, some other translations use the word expiation. Uh, The New American Standard, I think King James, uh, others use the word propitiation. Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath so that his holiness was not compromised in forgiving our sins. If you were here last week or the week before, you remember I drew this picture with like an act, like a like diametrically opposed, these two concepts. One is mercy and one is justice. Mercy and justice. They're diametrically opposed. They can't function together. If I murder somebody and I stand before the judge and he says, I forgive you. I've received mercy, but justice hasn't been served. If he says, you murdered somebody, the penalty for murder is the rest of your life in jail, and he sends me to jail for the rest of my life, justice has been served, but no mercy has been granted. You can't have mercy and justice together. It requires a third party to come in, and that's what propitiation is. Jesus is the third party. God said, Pat Brady, you sinned against me, and the wage of your sin is eternal death. You can't be with me anymore forever. Ultimately, you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. But I wish to have relationship with you. But because of my holiness, I cannot compromise justice. Justice has to be served. Jesus, will you go and allow me to pour my wrath on you such that if he should place his faith in you, that I can credit him, your righteousness, and the justice that's required from his sin, I'll put it on you. And the perfection that you have, I'll give it to him. Jesus, will you do that? Jesus said, yes. Jesus, as perfect high priest, offered himself on our behalf so that both justice could be satisfied and mercy could be satisfied. He is the propitiation. He's the the offering that appeases God's holy requirement for wrath against every one of us if we should choose Jesus the way that he's offered to us. That's propitiation. That's, it's not expiation. <laughs> it kind of is atonement. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I, I, if anybody's interested in, in the difference between atonement, expiation, and propitiation, you can ask me later. I actually studied it out. Propitiation is an excellent word because it includes expiation, which is the actual payment, but it, it's broader in that it includes the restoration of the parties in it. So he propitiated our relationship with God in his sacrifice. Good enough? Okay, good. Because I don't have much more than that to help you. <laughs> First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the redemption that brought us back into uh, a righteous relationship with God was based upon the unblemished and spotless blood of Christ. See, only perfection unto perfection. All through the Old Testament, or not the whole of the Old Testament, but through uh, Israel, when they were given the law through Moses, they had all these processes that they had to follow, sacrifices to atone for sin, sacrifices to atone for sin, all these different things that they had to do, but they were never complete Because the person who made the sacrifice wasn't perfect. The high priest chosen by God every year would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and would make the appropriate sacrifice. The first sacrifice that the high priest had to make was for their own sin because they were imperfect as high priests. 
Once they had made a sacrifice to cleanse themselves, then they made a sacrifice for the people. But because the high priest wasn't perfect, and no matter how hard they tried to get the best lamb or whatever it is that they had to sacrifice, it wasn't without blemish or spot. It had to be done again and again and again and again until the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, offered the perfect and spotless lamb of God himself for the sin of all mankind because of his perfection and because of as high priest and because of his perfection as lamb of God, it was done once and for all, never has to be done again. How do we know that? Because of the resurrection. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, the wages of sin, remember from Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. Had Jesus not led a perfect and sinless life, if there had been any flaw, any spot, any spot, any blemish in Jesus at all, where would he be? Dust in the tomb still. He was only able to be resurrected because he had no sin. Death had no hold on him because he was perfect. That's how we can tell somebody or we can tell ourselves, Jesus is all that's required for me to be saved, for my sin to be washed away and his perfect righteousness to be my righteousness. Because if he had sinned, guess what? He doesn't have a white garment to give us. He has a stained garment. Stained garment doesn't get us into heaven. We know that Jesus was perfect and spotless because of the resurrection. That's the power of the resurrection unto our faith. Our whole faith is based in the resurrection. No resurrection, we should party and die. Is that how Paul said it? You know, paraphrase Bible, something like that. The implications of God raised him from the dead, because he could have used other words, right? Why did Paul choose the words and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead? Remember, in one place, Paul says, well, I shouldn't put this all on Paul. In one place, scripture says, so it's God, believe and you'll be saved. Believe and be baptized or repent and be baptized. Call in the name of the Lord. All these different things. It wasn't just sloppy. It was all purposeful. Why did he choose the words and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead? What are the implications of God raised him from the dead? Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 16. In the Corinthian church, these people had started to infiltrate and trying to corrupt maybe not even with a bad heart, just with a bad doctrine, corrupt the church's pure faith in Jesus. And what they did was they denied the resurrection. Seriously, nobody ever gets raised from the dead. Dead people don't raise up again. You can still have God, all this kind of stuff, but the resurrection just didn't happen. Here's Paul's response to that. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The resurrection is absolutely central to Christian faith. If somebody says, well, you know what? I, I, I can believe that there's a God. I mean, I, I do believe there's a God. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that, that this, this man, Jesus, who you're telling me is God, but he's also a man. Okay, I, I mean, I, I, can, I can faithfully wrap my mind around that, but dead people don't get raised up. 
no salvation. The, the core of our salvation, it's, it's what we have that no other religion has. How do I know it's true? Because Christ was risen from the dead. How do you know? The Bible's full. It's funny, the, the devil used to use me to say, like the Bible, you can't use the Bible to prove anything because the Bible can't prove itself. Except the Bible wasn't written as a marketing tool. The Bible is a historical document. It's like, hey, uh, Theophilus, this is um, uh, Dr. Luke. He, he's got this guy, Theophilus, who's, who's a Christian, but he's like, man, how do I really know this stuff? So this really smart guy named Luke says, hey, Theophilus, let me go, and I'm going to research all these claims that you've trusted in in your faith so that you can know that your faith is sound. And that's where the book of Luke comes from. The Gospel of Luke. That's where the book of Acts come from. It's from this guy going, well, the book of Acts is kind of him recounting his experience. But the book of Luke is him going off and researching, talking to people. How do we know he was raised from the dead? Because all these people saw him crucified and then they saw him alive again. It's not that the Bible is trying to sell itself. The Bible is telling us what happened. Our faith in Jesus Christ resurrected from that tomb is the foundation of where we find our resurrection. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope to be resurrected ourselves. Now, you don't have to come on Palm Sunday because you heard that whole thing. Please come on Palm Sunday. All right. I'm getting close. Have to understand. We talked about imputed righteousness. Not my righteousness so that I can be okay with God. Jesus' righteousness imputed to me. My sin transferred to his account, the wrath poured out on him for my sin, his perfect spotless righteousness imputed to me, right? It is only imputed by faith. Put the picture back up if you would. It's only imputed by faith that's the one across the top that includes the two columns, not just the one on the right. It requires that both pieces are in place. But faith or, or righteousness can't be imputed outside of faith. It can't be imputed by works. Oh, Lord Jesus, you're so awesome what you did for me. I really need to do something to be saved. I, I, I'll stop smoking. I'll start this. It's like you've got to understand that's a lie from the pit of hell. As soon as we start to try to do something unto salvation bigger than just trusting in what Jesus did, we're not saved. Let me give you um, some more scriptures here, right? Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, God's grace offered to us through faith in Christ Jesus and what he did, and not that, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans three twenty one and 22. But now, apart from the law... Remember, much of Israel, the Jews thought that their righteousness came from keeping law, right? That's good works. God said, do these things. I do these things. Therefore, I'm righteous before God. The problem is nobody did those things. They might have did some. They might have not done some others. But there's a righteousness. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the witnesses of this righteousness of God is the law. And it's the prophets, it's Isaiah, it's Ezekiel, it's, it's Joel, it's, it's all of the Old Testament prophets that we have that all point towards Jesus, that point toward this righteousness that becomes available to mankind through faith in Jesus Christ. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, the very perfect white garment, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, who have faith, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The very righteousness imputed to us, the righteousness of God, his very perfect holy righteousness is in our faith in Jesus Christ, end of conversation. When you do something wrong, you don't do something right to get back in God's good graces because it doesn't matter that you did something wrong unto your salvation. It matters that you do something wrong. You need to stop doing wrong stuff. But the point is, unto your salvation, what you did wrong isn't the issue. Is your heart sincerely his is the issue. And if your heart is sincerely his, then guess what happens? Holy Spirit moves in. When Holy Spirit moves in, it becomes very difficult to do wrong. That's why Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because if it's easy for us to do bad things that are contrary to God's will, we might not be in the faith. Because the conviction of the loving God who places his loving spirit inside of us to help us to be like Jesus will make us uncomfortable committing sin. It doesn't mean that you don't have Holy Spirit if you commit a sin. There's, there's a lot of reasons. I, I told you before, broken hearts, life experiences, healings and deliverances that, that will make it so much easier for you. But if, if you can be casual with sin, the examination of your faith is something you really ought to do because Holy Spirit in there is not going to make you casual with sin because you're going to become like Jesus. The good news is you, you won't want to do sin anymore. I mean, your flesh might want to, but your inner man is going to be totally against all that. The righteousness of God imputed to an unrighteous person through faith in Jesus Christ as propitiation for his or her sin done. That's it. Okay, so right now you're scratching your head and you're thinking, do I need to be a theologian to share the gospel? You don't, but you knew Back up two steps. Do I need to be a theologian to be able to lead anybody to the Lord? You don't. But you've got to have right theology. Your doctrine unto how a person gets saved has to be true. Do I have to know every scripture? When you lead somebody to the Lord, you don't have to know any of these scriptures. If they challenge you, how do you know that from the scriptures? Then you can get out your Bible. If you've got an electronic Bible, it's a whole lot easier because you can put in some words. And if you're not studied, shame on you. You need to be studied if you're a Christian. That's a whole different sermon. You don't have to have all these things and make a defense in that regard, but you have to be able to explain, hey, listen, you're lost in front of God because of your sin, but you can be reconciled because this perfect one, Jesus, offered himself on your behalf. That's the conversation of the gospel. Galatians, um, just three more scriptures. Galatians chapter one, verses six through nine. The, the church in Galatia had been um, infected by these false teachers. And Paul is dealing with that in this letter to the church. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Now, capital H, him is Jesus. That you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ, or I guess it's the Father, for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach 
to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Then he goes on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What he's talking about here is bondage back under the law. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. You couldn't keep the law. You could never be righteous unto yourself. So Christ came to set you free, to break your bondage of the law. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, which was the the thing that these guys were trying to get the the Christians to do, listen, you can't be a Christian unless you're a Jew first. And to become a Jew, you've got to have that little bit of surgery. Then you can be a Jew. Then you can receive Christ because Christ only came for the Jews. This is what you have to do to be saved. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. What he's saying is they came to you with a different gospel. The gospel is that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, if you sincerely give your life unto him as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that, that his perfect sacrifice was all that was necessary for you to receive as your righteousness by faith in him. You added something to it. It's not that gospel anymore. Even if you include it all and just bolt on circumcision, it's a different gospel. You can't be saved by this gospel because you said Jesus wasn't enough. Put the picture back up, please. So what must a person do then to be saved? But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, saving faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does a person have to do? First, they have to believe they need to be saved. Secondly, they have to sincerely give their lives to the lordship of Jesus and sincerely from their heart trust that his offering of himself alone fully satisfies their sin debt to God. The wages of sin is death. Death has been paid by Jesus to God for anybody who places their faith in him alone unto their salvation. That's it. It is simple. It's not so simple. Test me, try me, prove me, refine me. But I love my mom and my sister. They, they were the ones who were with me through all these terrible things that happened in my life. And they hate you, God. And they hate that I love you. Yeah, I know. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I didn't light a lamp to have it put under a basket. Whoever wants to have his life has to lose it. You have to make a choice. Is it hard? Not to understand, even not to do if you set your mind that you've actually given your life to Jesus. It's not, it's, it's, it's an easy decision. You don't choose your sister over Jesus. He said, when I, when I quote Luke 14, and I think people, it makes their stomach turn. It's like, if you don't hate the most dear people in your life, as compared to your devotion to me, that's not Luke 14, that's the Matthew scripture, but you're not worthy of me. He demands everything from us. 
And then he gives us the power to give it to him. And then even when we hold some back, he gives us the grace to not send us back into a lost place. That's the gospel. That's it. That's how it ends. That's how people get saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That is the word of faith that is in your mouth and in your heart. It's near you. It's ready to come out. You don't have to go down into the earth to pull it up. You don't have to go into heaven and bring Jesus down. It's done. That's Romans 6 and 7, I think, somewhere in there. So all that being said, if that's not how you understood getting saved and you recognize that you were lost in your sin, that you couldn't save yourself out from your own righteousness, but only that somebody had to offer themselves, the perfect themselves on your behalf that you might be saved. If you're willing to give your life to Jesus as Lord sincerely from your heart and you've come to the place of sincerely trusting that what he did is absolutely that all that's necessarily engaged by your faith that you might be saved, then now is the time to do that. And I would invite you to come up here as a public expression. There is no shame in expressing